Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast uh, on your favorite podcatcher, such as Spotify um, or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. And uh, just a programming note, uh, I will not be here. Um, I will not be doing a live show for the next two weeks. I will be away um, on a cruise, which I'm, uh, <laughs> part of me is very excited about and part of me is very, uh, apprehensive about, but, um, so yeah, so I will not be back until, uh, the second Friday of the new year. So I hope you all have a fantastic, uh, holiday season. All right, let's actually start with tonight's program. And we have an update to begin with. An update on everyone's favorite Martian mole. And so a tweet from NASA on the 16th noted that the mole has moved further down and is digging once again the way that it should be. Now we haven't gotten a specific measurement update, but it looks like from the picture that the mole has moved another few inches deeper and continues to work as it should. Now, of course, it definitely has gotten behind schedule, but if it can manage to actually get to a reasonable depth, then it will be very exciting. And we will actually be able to have the heat probe be able to do the science that it was originally meant to do, which would be great. Now, of course, that's not the only science that InSight has to be doing, which is good since it hasn't really been working. So there are other instruments on the InSight lander, and the team working on the seismometer recently announced measuring significant Mars quakes on May 22nd and July 25th, originating in a tectonic structure called Cerebus Fossae. This makes it, quote, the first active seismic zone ever discovered on Mars, according to a statement posted to the instrument's Twitter feed. Um, and I do love that all of the NASA um, landers and rovers and all of their um, equipment, they all have their own Twitter feeds that are basically uh, kind of... Um, <laughs> they act as if they're actually humanoid or um, anthropomorphic. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> and so uh, we will be getting more details, uh, but they don't want to release anything until the actual papers that the scientists have written have been published on the phenomena. And they also announced something weird. The NASA InSight seismometer has discovered a strange continuous signal at 2.4 hertz, apparently not related to the lander or weather activity, but excited by a lot of Marsquake, the statement read. This puzzling resonance acts as a natural seismic amplifier. And they go on to say, Mars is full of mysteries. <laughs> so yeah, um, 
that is something that, again, they don't actually know what is going on with it right now, but it is exciting to have these sorts of things because that's really what they want is new things to discover. That's the whole point. So hopefully we will learn more about what this continuous signal is in the future. But for now, uh, the Insight is just doing a lot of great work of recording things, and hopefully at some point the mole will reach the kind of depths that the heat probe will need to actually be starting to do its actual uh, scientific project. And again, even if it never happens, the Insight lander is still doing amazing work. And so Again, NASA is very good about making sure that there's no one thing that can make everything go wrong. Uh, they've learned <laughs> from some of their past mistakes, thankfully. Okay, so let's move on now. And we are going to talk about a cautionary tale uh, dealing with historical sources and the ways in which incorrect information can be transmitted down the line of scholarly writings and be infused into popular culture. And in fact, it's actually something that I've talked about before without knowing that it was wrong. And so what is this false fact? It has to do with the story of Merit Ptah, touted as the first female physician who lived in ancient Egypt. Merit Ptah was everywhere. Almost like a detective, I had to trace back her history, following every lead to discover how it all began and who invented Merit Ptah, says Jakob Kwasinski, PhD, a medical historian and instructor in the Department of Immunology and Microbiology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Publishing in the Journal of the History of Medicine and Allied Sciences, Kwasinski's work showed the lack of evidence for the actual figure. Merit Patel was everywhere, in online posts about women in STEM, in computer games, in popular history books. There's even a crater on Venus named after her, he said. And yet, with all of these mentions, there was no proof that she really existed. It soon became clear that there had been no ancient Egyptian woman physician called Merit Patel. He actually found that the story began in the 1930s when Kate Campbell, sorry, Kate Campbell Heard Mead, a medical historian, doctor, and activist, began writing a book on medical women around the world. Her book was published in 1938. It seems likely that she managed to use a real name, but one with no connection to medicine. Merit Ptah as a name existed in the Old Kingdom, but does not appear in any of the collated lists of ancient Egyptian healers, not even as one of the legendary or controversial cases, he said. She is also absent from the list of Old Kingdom women administrators. No Old Kingdom tombs are present in the Valley of the Kings, where the story places Merit Ptah's son, and only a handful of such tombs exist in the larger area, the Theban Necropolis. Now, all is not uh, lost because it turns out that there actually was a female healer who fits the general shape of the story. And so he, hy he hypothesizes that Heard Mead had knowledge of this story. Um, we, in fact, we know that there was a book that mentions um, 
this figure in uh, Heard Mead's library. But when she was writing about it, she apparently didn't bother to uh, make sure that she had gotten the facts right. And so she confused the details. Now, the real figure was named Pesachet, the mother of Akhethotep, an old kingdom courtier. And so on a false door in a tomb excavated in 1929 to 30, archaeologists, in fact, found a depiction of a woman that was presumed to be his mother. And the description of the woman was overseer of healer women. And so Kwasinski suggests that uh, part of the reason why nobody ever kind of looked at this more uh, with a more detailed eye is that there's, of course, a paucity of such stories from ancient times. So people want to, uh, you know, grab onto them and uh, con- and because of the consideration that, you know, Egypt was basically this far off wonderland. And so the story was able to be quickly transmitted despite not having the requisite evidence to back up the tale. Finally, it was associated with an extremely emotional, partisan, but also deeply personal issue of equal rights, he said. Altogether, this created a perfect storm that propelled the story of Merit Ptah into being told over and over again. But he also points out that despite the fact that she did not exist, she nevertheless embodies a real kind of person. Um, and we know that there were women healers in Egypt. And so um, it's also about the importance of pointing out that medicine and STEM fields have never been the exclusive purview of men. And so that is absolutely true. It's just that unfortunately, in this case, uh, our mythical heroine uh, has been uh, sadly misnamed. And so hopefully, uh, Pesachet will get uh, some mileage, and hopefully we will be able to move uh, that name back into, or move that name into some of the places where Merit Ptah has been up until this point. Okay, we're going to move on now and talk about a story that has kind of always been close to my heart, uh, and which has been reevaluated by a group of researchers recently. And so the opinions expressed in the paper are controversial, and I think it's good to talk about how different scientists can come to different conclusions based on different understandings of hypotheses. And so this is kind of one of those um, stories where you kind of see how the sort of messy bits of science uh, happen. Uh, It's important to remember that science is not a straight arrow of truth, but rather a meandering path that eventually leads to better understandings of the natural world and not some sort of capital T truth. And so the new opinion paper published in Trends of Ecology and Evolution seeks to clarify some of the facts surrounding the domestication of foxes by Dmitry Belyev at the Institute of Cytology and Genetics in Noviskobersk, USSR, beginning in 1959. And so the story goes that he took 30 male and 100 female wild foxes, vulpes vulpes, 
and over the next few decades, bred only the most human-friendly animals. By the 1970s, they were said to behave more like dogs. They also required a set of physical characteristics that made them different from wild foxes, such as floppy ears, turned-up tails, piebald coats, and wider faces. Belyaev suggested that these traits emerged because they were tied to the friendliness that was being selected for in some way, rather than actually being selected for themselves. They weren't selecting for those physical traits, they just were selecting for the docility and friendliness. The experiment led to the strengthening of a concept called domestication syndrome, which suggests that as animals are domesticated, they take on a specific set of transformations physically as well as behaviorally. The famous experiment is called the Russian Fox Farm Experiment. And honestly, I have wanted a domesticated fox ever since I first saw a documentary on it. So I am well-versed in this particular experiment. Um, and it's it's interesting to read how they are reinterpreting it. Um, and of course, it's always a little bit hard, I think, personally, um, kind of pulling out information from um, science in Russia at the time, because a lot of Soviet science was... Um, this seems to have been very, very straightforward, um, regardless of the actual sort of details. Um, but some science in, in the Soviet Union was pretty wild. And a lot of records have been kind of um, disappeared. So, but this one was pretty much, you know, I mean, it wasn't really related to anything important in the sort of like, um, you know, warfare or, um, you know, defense or anything like that. So it didn't really warrant being looked at by the uh, Soviet government all that much. <laughs> okay, so the authors of the current paper, including Eleanor Carlson, a biologist from the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and Gregor Larson, a paleogeneticist from the University of Oxford, point out that the original foxes were not, in point of fact, wild caught. And more importantly, the idea of domestication syndrome does not actually hold up to close scrutiny. Now, in his defense, Belyaev did not claim the foxes were wild caught, but rather referred to them as wild controls. And again, as we saw above, when you have words like that, they can transmute and it became sort of baked into the story of this, that they had been wild originally. But he did not actually state that. It just became part of the legend afterwards. He absolutely acknowledged that the animals had come from Soviet fur farms, which had acquired their stock from Canadian breeders, most likely fox farmers in Prince Edward's Island. And those, you know, Canadian breeders had been doing that for quite some time. Uh, these animals were already semi-domesticated by the time that they reached the Institute. The story we'd heard was that the Russian scientists had started with a wild population of foxes, selectively bred the least fearful foxes, and as a result of that selection, also gotten foxes with white spots, curly tails, and other changes, Carlson told Gizmodo. But up in Canada, they had foxes that were not fearful and already had white spotting. We don't know about curly tails. Decades before the project started. And then we found the fox project in Russia didn't start with wild foxes, but with fur farm foxes originally from Canada. 
It totally changed the way I think about cause and effect in the project, she said. Now, she explained that the foxes may no longer be the same as the foxes originally bred in Canada, but that the important thing is that there is no point where one can say they suddenly became domesticated. They argue that the idea of domestication, um, of domestication syndrome, uh, which they define as a suite of behavioral and morphological characteristics consistently observed in domestication populations, does not actually exist across the range of domesticated species that humans have bred. Now, the idea of domestication syndrome was actually first hinted at by Darwin back in 1868. Um, but that was just sort of the idea that maybe some of these traits moved with other things. Um, the term was actually coined by botanists and used exclusively by botanists until the early 20th century. It actually only spread to mammals uh, in the 1980s. The thing about it, though, is that its usage has risen dramatically since the 90s. So it would be a big deal if it turns out not to be true, especially since it has a host of corollary hypotheses associated with it, including the neural crest hypothesis and the pedomorphosis hypothesis. Now, the neural crest hypothesis relates to neural crest cells, a type of stem cell that is a common factor for biological processes that lead to multiple and unanticipated physical changes in a species. The, pedom the pedomorphosis hypothesis, or neoteny, is probably more familiar to you. It's the scientific term uh, for the idea that domestic animals as adults tend to have certain traits that are usually more associated with juveniles. And so basically the idea is that uh, we sort of breed animals to look more like uh, young animals, even as adults, because of course we think that young animals are cuter. Um, <laughs> but of course, you know, again, it's not necessarily that we're actually breeding for those things. It's that those things are part of those things tend to happen when you breed for things like um, docility and friendliness. And so to see if there really was a specific set of physical traits that could be shown to be across the board retained in our domestic species, the group looked at the foxes, as well as dogs, cats, goats, pigs, rabbits, rats, and mice. Now, obviously, these animals have different have traits different from their wild cousins, but the hypothesis was that these differences would be placed in a sort of neat set of criteria that could be used to determine whether or not a species was domesticated. When doing this sort of um, comparison, they found many gaps and inconsistencies as they compared the different species for comparable traits. A large part of their concern is that since there are gaps, there's no way to actually support talking about domestication syndrome across the board. 
These hypotheses assume that the domestication syndrome exists, but with little supporting data, wrote the authors. The defining characteristics vary widely and have not been observed in most domesticated species. Many studies fail to distinguish traits that accompanied domestication from those only in modern breeds, and some traits are reported anecdotally without any accompanying frequencies or measurements. And so what they tried to do was actually create an objective criteria. And so the researchers defined what domestication syndrome would ideally look like and what they looked for when they compared the different um, domesticated animals. First was onset. A trait must appear at the time when the species began to be bred for tameness. Two, frequency. A trait must be significantly common in the population. And three, association. It must be associated with tameness in individuals, not simply as an average of the population. So it can't be at the population scale. It has to be in the individual scale. And so when they tried to apply these three criteria to domesticated species, they found that none of them could fit all three criteria. Thus, they suggest that it is unwise to continue to talk about domestication syndrome. Rather than focus on the domestication syndrome, we should instead consider how domesticated species have changed and are still changing in response to human-modified environments, wrote the authors. This effort will provide a robust framework to investigate the cultural and biological processes that underlie one of the most important evolutionary transitions. Now, Carlson suggests that much of what has happened can be more parsimoniously described by genetic drift, the random mutations that over time accumulate to create changes in populations. Now, again, as noted at the beginning, if their hypotheses are true and their interpretation shows that there really isn't a um, domestication syndrome, this would overturn a lot of thinking about domestication in biological search circles. And so, unsurprisingly, the researchers are getting a fair amount of pushback from those who think they've misunderstood either the experiment or the idea of domestication syndrome, or both. <laughs> um, and so David McHugh, a professor of functional genomics at the University College Dublin, spoke at length about the experiment with Larson before they actually published their paper. And he does agree that the Canadian origin of the foxes makes sense. However, he's less persuaded by the idea that they've knocked out uh, domestication syndrome as a viable hypothesis. It is important to note that as data accumulates from genome scale functional and comparative analyses of domestic animals and their wild ancestors, we should eventually have sufficient data to fully test the domestication syndrome hypothesis, said McHugh. Now, he thinks that further work will be needed to test if the biological basis of domestication syndrome is tied to genetic disruptions or perturbations in the development of various tissues derived from neural crest cells. He also thinks that further genetic study by paleogeneticists will give us a better idea of the history of, death, of domestication. 
Now, it doesn't hurt that he's actually been working on that subject. Um, and so he is definitely someone who thinks that, uh, I think that he's more uh, of the opinion that we need more information um, and that we're still kind of in the space of finding out um, sort of the genetic origins of kind of of some of the um, parent species. And so we need to do some more work there. Now, Adam Wilkins, an evolutionary biologist from Humboldt University in Berlin, uh, he is, he's of the opinion that they don't understand either the experiment or domestication <laughs> syndrome. And he was actually involved in the recent surge in talk about domestication syndrome uh, as part of a 2014 paper he co-authored. And so he considers the current paper, quote, deeply problematic. But of course, he does note that he is almost certainly at least slightly biased um, since they are kind of trying to overturn work that he has actually done himself. The root of our disagreement lies, I think, in, in that we mean something different by syndrome than they do, Wilkins wrote. They seem to believe that something can only be called a syndrome if it affected individuals, if the affected individuals all display the exact same set of traits. Whereas we argue that if domestication is accompanied by a range of unselected traits, which might differ somewhat but often overlap, it counts as a syndrome. And so I think that that's one of the big things there is that it depends on what, how you define it. And so you definitely will have different scientists defining things uh, in slightly different ways and sometimes in rather large different ways. Um, and so eventually we try and get to a point where we have consensus, but there's definitely always a point where you have this kind of overlap in uh, general. Now, he also disagrees that you could say that the Canadian populations were uh, very similar to the farm fox population. I'm not sure that they were arguing quite that, but... Um, and so an earlier examination of the experiment by Ludmilla Trut from the Institute of Cytology and Genetics of the Siberian Department of the Russian Academy of Sciences found remarkable transformations over the 40 years of the experiment that ultimately involved 45,000 foxes from 30 to 35 generations. And so they they did concede that the foxes had already been bred for some signs of tameness. However, she ultimately found that there were changes that made the experiment. There were changes made during the experiment, writing that the foxes, quote, are unusual animals, docile, eager to please, and unmistakably domesticated. When tested in groups in an enclosure, pups compete for attention, snarling fiercely at one another as they seek the favor of their human handler. She also noted that the unexpected physical changes weren't seen until the eighth or tenth generation of animals. And that was just the beginning of them. That The first changes were um, white spots that started to... Um, be on the faces of the animals. After that, it was the curled tails. And then as 
the uh, 20th or 30th generation came along, you started to get the floppy ears and things like that, um, overbites, things that were very much different from the original animals. Now, among other points, Wilkins suggests that they failed to define domestication. But I do have to point out that they themselves noted that the fact that there isn't a definition of domestication is one of the big problems that they have with the whole thing. So yes, that absolutely, they did not define domestication. But for them, that was part of the problem. (laughs) Now, we actually know about one of the things that could be happening here. We know that pleiotropy is a real phenomenon. And so pleiotropy is when a single gene affects multiple traits. So it there is a genetic possibility, absolutely, uh, com- absolutely and completely, that breeding for tameness could lead to floppy ears or bigger eyes or something like that. It could be that the single gene that is coding for tameness also codes for things like ear uh, size or ear orientation. It's absolutely true. But it's not really certain yet whether the observed traits truly are down to such a mechanism or if genetic drift is influencing the changes uh, more specifically. Now, of course, as with all science, it turns out more research is needed. (laughs) And um, again, I just always like to remind people that this is a feature, not a bug of science, that this is how we get to good approximations of the truth is by having a lot of people look at things and pour over them and uh, figure out exactly what they think is happening, read each other's work, argue about each other's work and say, yeah, I don't think you've got that right. Um, And that's sort of how we progress in science. It's not neat. uh, It's messy, but it is the best way that we have of moving towards uh, at least little t truth. Now, if nothing else, I definitely suggest that you Google image search for these foxes because they are insanely cute. Um, They are just ridiculously cute. Um, It's incredible. And I want all of them. (laughs) Uh, Every time I see one, I I always am like, it's one of the domesticated foxes. I want it. (laughs) Okay. And on that note, we are going to take a break for some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we will talk about something completely different. Hang on for just a moment. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, 
Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Next to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Okay, we are back. 
and we are going to switch gears completely now. And so we are going to talk about another kind of weird story. Back in 2016, the IRS was meant to send letters to all 4.5 million Americans who had failed to meet the, quote, individual mandate uh, for health care. Now, unfortunately, apparently, they didn't actually have the budget to send a letter to everyone. So 600,000 people were randomly left off of the mailing lists. And so by doing this, they inadvertently created a randomized control study where people were, con- were randomly assigned to one of two different interventions, those who received a letter and those who didn't, who served as a control group. And so, uh, as you may know, in a randomized controlled study is kind of the gold standard of studies in um, research. And so doing that uh, is very good and can give you really good, uh, solid results that you can you can actually really be confident about. Um, the only way to do it better is to have it be double-blind, but in this case, it's not really something that needed to be double-blinded. And so a working paper, uh, it's not yet been peer-reviewed, uh, has now been issued by the National Bureau of Economic Research, by Jacob Golden, a former economist at the Treasury Department, who's now at Stanford, along with Ithai Lurie and Janet McCubbin, who are both still at Treasury. Now, the analysis showed that people who received the letter were more likely to sign up for insurance the next year. They found a 2.8% relative increase in the uptake of insurance among those who received letters. In the two years after the letters were sent, they also found that the rate of mortality among those 45 to 64 who were previously uninsured was 0.06% lower than in the control group. Now, it doesn't seem like much, but this would actually lead to one fewer death for every 1,648 individuals who received letters. Now, the authors do note, though, that their confidence interval can be adjusted both to a medium and large effect, and so they actually erred on the side of caution, which means it could have been an even larger effect. They suggest this outcome lends evidence to the hypothesis that having health insurance reduced mortality amongst that age group, and so they didn't really find anything for young people or other people. Um, in the study. It was really just that sort of um, middle-aged to um, just before retirement kind of age that was significantly impacted, which makes a lot of sense because that's kind of the age where things start to break down and you start to have uh, health issues for a lot of people who might have otherwise been healthy when they were younger. And so the new research provides, quote, a really high standard of evidence that you just that you can't just dismiss, says Sarah Miller, an assistant professor of business economics and public policy at the University of Michigan, uh, who is not involved in the study. And so I personally think it's pretty unsurprising that people with health insurance would have lower mortality rates. But as with everything, 
you need to actually have experimental evidence to be able to make claims. And so it's really, this is a really interesting way in which you were, in which the researchers were able to find actual experimental evidence without having to do some sort of experiment that would not necessarily be able to be either as well-randomized or as ethical, because you can't really say to people, well, we're going to not give you insurance and we're going to give you insurance instead. So <laughs> you can't really do that sort of thing. Um, and so that is just a really interesting little story. Okay, so we are going to move on again and switch gears yet again. And we are going to move on to some rare good news about an endangered species. So it looks like the total population of mountain gorillas left in the wild is now 1,063. Now this might seem like a fairly dismal number, but it's actually quite good. Mountain gorillas, or Gorilla berengi berengi, are actually increasing in numbers according to the new survey conducted by Fauna and Flora International. The survey was conducted in the Bwindi region of Uganda and the Sariembe Nature Reserve in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or the DRC. And so this is one of only two places where mountain gorillas are found. The other is the volcanic Varingus region in DRC. And so the population in this area was counted by over 75 trained surveyors, and they found 459 individuals. Now, this was combined with an earlier survey done that found 604 individuals in the Varungus region, which led to the 1,063 figure. Now, to put into this into perspective, this is up from just 680 individuals in both regions only a decade ago. And so that is a huge increase for such a um, imperiled species in just a decade. And so this project is supported by the International Gorilla Conservation Program, which includes partners like Fauna and Flora International, as well as the World Wildlife Fund and Conservation International. The mountain gorillas were actually able recently to be updated from critically endangered to endangered because they have gained a population of over 1,000. Now, it's, all, it's not all good news. Uh, unfortunately, the closely related eastern gorilla, or gorilla berengi, remains critically endangered. And so we do still have more work to do. These survey results are undoubtedly good news, yet mountain gorillas remain threatened with extinction, said Matt Walpole, a senior director at Fauna and Flora International in a press release. We have to remain vigilant against threats and build on the success achieved to date by ensuring resources, including from tourism, are properly directed to mountain gorillas and local communities. Now, they are still threatened by the loss of habitat, climate change, civil unrest, and the spread of human-borne diseases because, of course, primates are very close to humans. And they also get caught up in wire and rope snares meant for antelopes. And so the, the surveyors found and destroyed 88 snares, which, again, 
little bit of bad news, that's pretty much the same amount that they destroyed the last time they did this 10 years ago. So they haven't really made an impact on snare uh, usage, but, um, you know, one step at a time. (laughs) And so uh, they actually also found an uptick in elephant and chimpanzee populations, which really does suggest that this area is, despite everything, doing a good job of production. And one of the other big uh, wins is that it helps with the worry about genetic diversity. Eastern lowland gorillas, or Grower's gorillas, are known to have issues with low genetic diversity, which leads to fertility problems and problems with their immune system, which of course further weakens their ability to survive and thrive. But for now, we should be glad that at least some conservation methods are actually happening, or actually helping, I should say. Okay. So uh, we mentioned very briefly that chimpanzee populations are among those that are up. And so now I want to uh, switch to actually a couple stories about chimpanzees. And so the first is about two chimpanzees at the St. Louis Zoo. And so they have been filmed for years doing a particular spontaneous behavior. Holly and Bakari two closely bonded female chimps will walk and sway in sync around their habitat, often carrying a blanket together, um, sort of between their legs underneath their torso. And it's the same blanket, they hold it together. And so uh, it's been compared to basically uh, doing a bit of a conga line. And so a new study published in Scientific Reports by researchers from Europe suggests that there is evidence that the chimps' routine is both intentional and not a product of learning from humans. They also suggest it might just give us an insight into how dancing evolved in humans. And so the researchers studied videos available on YouTube from between 2011 and 2015. Using the videos, they created a computer model of the movement, which led them to the conclusion that this is a purposeful ritual that the two had established together. They wrote that the chimps, quote, exhibited a gait movement that was individually regular and mutually synchronized, demonstrating joint rhythm keeping. Whenever one individual accelerated or deaccelerated her pace, her partner matched her pace. As been As for having been taught or learned it from humans, chimps haven't been taught to do entertainment-based activities since the 1980s, and the movement is too specific and complicated to have been learned through casual observation. They note that while other animals have been observed moving their bodies rhythmically to sounds or in response to another member of the species, this is the first time animals have developed a behavioral behavior independent of outside stimulus like music. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. As an aside, uh, if you want a laugh, you can do a Google search for parrots and music, for instance, and you will not be disappointed. If you haven't talked about one in particular, uh, Snowball, he is quite the dancer. And so, yeah. But again, that is in response to music, also in response to their owners generally, and not spontaneous. 
Now, the researchers believe that this behavior originated as a coping mechanism for the two females who were who both lost their mothers and were without a healthy environment when young. They were eventually accepted into the zoo's community, but they had already bonded with each other, and the rhythmic swaying might have been a stress reliever, like being rocked in a rocking chair. The zoo confirms that the chimps have been dancing since infancy. As adults, Holly and Bakari socialize with all of the other members of the group and behave like the chimpanzees they are, notes Susan Gallagher, the zoo's public relations director. But there are still times when the two best friends seek each other out for the familiar tactile comfort they offered each other. Now, the authors also suggest this might mean that dance could have developed independently of music in early human society. However, this is simply an observational guess, and again, much more research would be needed to confirm such a conjecture. Okay, let's move on now to talk about a localized behavior in a group of wild chimpanzees. In the forests of West Africa, researchers have documented for several years that adult male chimpanzees will sometimes pick up a rock, hoot, throw the stone at the tree, and then run away. They even have favorite trees where small piles of rock build up. Now, for years, we've wondered why. And a new study suggested that chimps throw rocks primarily at trees that create the richest, most long-lasting sound when struck. This would indicate that the tree striking involves some kind of communication or is simply pleasing to the animals. Sorry, I'm having an allergic reaction, um, making it hard for me to talk all of a sudden. Amy Kalan, a primatologist at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, and co-authors of the study published in Biological Letters, first reported on the behavior in 2016, and have been trying to understand it ever since. Kalan also knew that some of the animals drum on the buttresses of trees to communicate their location to other members of the troop in the forest. And so Kalan actually asked two groups of French researchers who study sound perception and acoustics to help her design an experiment to test the timber of the different kinds of trees. And so she ended up getting to chuck rocks at 13 different kinds of trees and recording the thuds they produced. It was quite fun, I have to say, she said. They found that the chimps preferred trees such as the Triculia, which produce lower, longer-lasting sounds. They have found the behavior uh, so far in four groups of chimps, in Guinea-Bissau, Guinea, Liberia, and the Ivory Coast. Now, Kalan has yet to catch a chimp in the act of choosing a new tree. She hopes to figure out in the future how they detect a tree to use. It may be that the location is important and is close to some sort of resource like food or water. It could also, on the other hand, be a dominance display, since it is usually males doing this activity. And so hopefully further study will give her more insight into this interesting habit. And um, I definitely know that I've, I've sort of talked about this uh, glancingly before, because I remember um, the idea of there being uh, trees with rock piles at the bottom of them. And so, yeah, I think it's really interesting. And um, 
it would be great to figure out what exactly they are thinking about when they do that. Okay, so finally tonight, let's talk about the remarkable discovery that has led researchers to describe the life of a woman who lived 5,700 years ago. Her DNA was recovered from Lolland, an island in Denmark, and thus she has been nicknamed Lola. The DNA sample was recovered from an ancient piece of basically chewing gum found in the Stone Age site of Slitholm. Now, the level of preservation in the gum, which is a blackish-brown substance that's made by heating up birch bark, was so good that they were able to extract a complete genome from Lola, as well as from ancient pathogens and oral microbes that she would have had in her mouth. Now, this is the first time researchers have been able to extract DNA from something other than human bones or teeth. They believe that she would have had dark skin, dark hair, and blue eyes. Interestingly, her DNA more closely matches that of hunter-gatherers from the mainland of Europe rather than those who lived in central Scandinavia at this period. They found traces of DNA of what presumably would have been parts of her diet, including hazelnuts and duck. They also found that she was lactose intolerant, which suggests that the ability to digest lactose into adulthood is a rather modern adaptation. That's, you know, a relative term of modernity. And so excavations of the area suggest, quote, that the people who occupied the site were heavily exploiting wild resources well into the Neolithic, which is the period when farming and domesticated animals were first introduced into southern Scandinavia. That's lead author Thijs Jensen, a postdoctoral fellow from the Globe Institute at the University of Copenhagen. Uh, and so they also found pathogens in the chewing gum, including the Epstein-Barr virus, uh, and that causes mononucleosis, uh, or mono. Now, as to why she might have been chewing the birch pitch, there are two main hypotheses. Firstly, that the substance was used as a glue for hafting stone tools. We know about that. And so chewing it might have been part of the process in order to make it usable for that activity. The second suggestion is that people chewed it because it is slightly antiseptic and might have helped with toothaches or other illnesses, or even as a sort of toothpaste. But of course, they might have chewed it for the reason that modern humans usually do, to suppress hunger or just for fun. Now, it's not all fun and games. Being able to detect pathogens in our ancient ancestors can be quite useful. It can help us understand how pathogens have evolved and spread over time and what makes them particularly virulent in a given environment, senior author Hans Schroeder, an associate professor from the Globe Institute at the University of Copenhagen, said in a statement. At the same time, it may help predict how a pathogen will behave in the future and how it might be contained or eradicated, which is always a good thing. All right, that is all the time for tonight. Uh, again, there will be no new um, show next week, but I will be back soon uh, in the new year. And so have a great holiday, everyone. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com.
The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.